Are we well this morning? Are we ready to get stuck into it? I'm going to start off with a word of prayer. Um, just join with me. Join with me. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time, this privilege that we have to gather together as a family, an extended family this morning because of the gift of your son. And Lord, we recognize that what we are embarking on now and what we have been doing all morning so far, this is nothing short of a privilege. And so we want to take a moment right now just to remember our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world who don't have this freedom and this privilege. Holy Spirit, would you meet them at their point of need? Would you be the comforter and the peace that you promise you are? May they tangibly experience that in some way. And we want to lift up all the other churches across our city that are meeting this morning, for all the other communities, for all the other denominations, for all the other people, young and old. Father, may the church of this city rise up like the sleeping army that it is. Would you wake us in some way that we may take hold of what is ours and that we may proclaim and be signposts to the coming kingdom and that others would be able to look to us, your kingdom come and your will be done. Let us be a taste of what is to come. So as we move throughout our schools and our workplaces and our universities and our sporting clubs and our streets and our communities, wherever it is we find ourselves through the week, may we recognise that we are salt and light. Each of us in this room are nothing less than full-time ministers of the gospel. And we need to take that mandate seriously. We know that our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world take it very seriously. Holy Spirit, this morning, would you wake us, stir us, invigorate us afresh and anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, oh, I don't want to start on a sour note, but I had some really, really um, devastating news through the week. Um, so... As um, Michelle mentioned, I get to lead a program here called um, Catalyst, which I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll just talk about it now real briefly. So it's a, I work with Stirling Theological College. I run this one-year university program. Um, actually, uh, oh, there we go. You guys are on it, eh? Um, yeah, so this university program, I spent like 13 years as a high school teacher, 10 of those as a chaplain at a school. And um, I don't know about you, but I came across three different types of students that caused me concern. I managed to narrow it down to three. Um, the first one was a number of students that were leaving school uh, and then taking a gap year, which turned into a gap year and a half, which turned into unemployment. And parents calling me up saying, um, can you please come and talk to Johnny? I won't listen to me, but he'll listen to you. And he's doing nothing with his life and so much potential unrealized. The second type of student was those that were finishing year 12 and were like, I've got to get to uni, I've got to get to uni. And I was like, why? But there's this perceived sense of pressure to go and do some tertiary study. And so they go and they sign up for some course, whatever they can get into, what they think that they're meant to be doing. And then six months in, they're like, oh, it's not what I expected. And then they'll go and change course into something else. And it's maybe six or 12 months into that, and it's like, oh, it's not what I expected. And after six years, the statistics in Australia say that one in five students won't actually finish what they start. But what they will graduate with is not a piece of paper and a qualification, but a massive debt. <laughs> That's scary. 
That's scary. That's a concern. This perceived pressure to go and become someone and something that they don't even know who they are yet. And then the third type of student were those that were passionately wanting to serve Jesus with everything that they had. And so they thought, I've got to go to Bible college to become a church pastor. I'm like, where does it say that in the Bible? Where does it say that you have to go and become a church? I'm one of those church pastors. But we need people in all spheres and professions and industries and trades throughout our entire society who proclaim to be a follower of Jesus and take the commandment to be salt and light seriously. And so when I pray that all of you here are nothing less than full-time ministers, look, I'm up here with a microphone, whoop-de-doo, all of you are full-time ministers of the gospel. It's one of the tenets of the Church of Christ movement that we hold to dearly, which says that we believe in the priesthood of all believers, and that means that you're sitting next to a senior minister. I don't care what your age is. I don't care. But if you profess to follow Jesus, it is up to you, and it is your responsibility to go out there and proclaim the good news. It's not on me. It's not on the people who fill out the front rows. No, don't worry about all of that. Get out there. Get on with it. It's an adventure that's ahead. And so many of our students just don't get it. And so I get to spend a whole year, essentially, it's like a discipleship course on steroids that's completely university accredited and paid for by our government. How good? So that's, that's part of what I get to do. But earlier this year, the way that we do things is a little bit different. We travel at the start of every semester. And so at the start of semester one, we take our students in partnership with our friends over at Urban Neighbours of Hope in Klong Toy in Thailand. So they've been there for about 15 years, uh, living in Bangkok's largest slum. And so we go and the slum community is our classroom for the first two and a half weeks of semester one. And this year we got to meet um, a refugee family that have been in hiding in Thailand since 2013. Um, this particular fellow that I got to meet with, there was a connection that was made on that one night that I just can't explain, but he's, he's my age, both 38 years old. Um, I've got four kids, he's got three, around similar sort of ages. He's got a beautiful wife, so do I. <laughs> um, he's, he's Pakistani and half of my heritage is Pakistan. It's my mum's side of the family. Um, and he was in a, a Muslim and Hindu stronghold community and had to leave because there was a fatwa put on his life. Now, essentially, that's a fancy term for saying, you've spoken out against the, Muhammad, or the Prophet Muhammad publicly, and so now there's a bounty on you. So whoever kills you gets immediate entry into paradise. And so he had to flee uh, for his own safety, him and his family. And they've been hiding in Thailand. The reason they hide in Thailand is because you don't need a visa to get into Thailand. So they bought a return ticket, but they just never left. And so they've been in hiding there. And so we got to, date my, took my students and we got to spend a night with them in hiding, which was an amazing experience. You just imagine this, right? You've got three young kids and um, the kids don't ever see grass except for Sundays when they sneak out to church. And the church they've gone to, I didn't get to go there, but I, from what was explained to me, it wouldn't be too dissimilar to this, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, but this family gets ushered in through the front doors, the emergency exits, and everyone else comes through the back. So if the police come looking for any of the refugees, because this church is known to help people like that, um, they've got enough time where the congregation will pretend to help the police, but they've got enough time to get back out again. And this happens on a fairly regular basis at their church, where the police come to disrupt the service, to seek out the refugees and those that are not meant to be in the country. And so we got to spend the night with him. Uh, they cooked some amazing food for us. And I got to watch him tape the doors so that when they turned the fan on, no breeze would get out. So if anyone walked past, they wouldn't think there's anyone inside the room. 
And I got to see the kitchen on their balcony where the wife was having to get down to, to cook the meal for us because they don't want to be seen by people in public. And they're being hidden at a Seventh-day Adventist commune there, along with about six other families. And so when we arrived and we're just waiting downstairs, there was a man that was dressed up in some priesthood attire, big wooden cross around. And he asked us in very, very clear English, he looked tired, but he spoke very good English, are you here to meet the Pakistanis? Straight away, some red flags went up for me and my students, I just, you know, held them to the side and it's like, no, no, we're just, we're just here waiting for some friends, actually. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's what, that's what we're here for. And he kept going on about, are you here to see the Pakistanis? Are you here to see the Pakistanis? And I'm like, no, we're just here to, to meet some friends and we're just waiting for them. And so afterwards, I went and asked that, this brother of mine, who, who was that, that priest? And he's like, that wasn't a priest, that was one of these secret cops. But um, this is a life they have to live with. Anyway, he, uh, him and his family were um, arrested during this past week. I think it was Monday or Tuesday morning. And um, it's concerning because they've been given approval to get across to Canada. They're just waiting on sponsorship to come through, literally just some documentation in the mail. Um, and it was due to be coming any day. And, um, and then, so they've been thrown into, into the jail there. Now, the jail there, it's called the IDC, is what they use for the refugees in Thailand. Uh, they're not meant to house more than 20 people per cell. There's four different cells in this particular compound. At the moment, there's 160 people per cell that are being held. Uh, no visitors are allowed. People that want to come in and visit them need to give actual names and birth dates of the people they're visiting. But the problem with that is if you're there to visit someone who's there illegally and you know their name and their birth date, you're associated with them and straight away you're red flagged. And these friends of ours in the slums of Thailand that have been there for 15 years they go and they visit every single week. And different people, they'll go and visit someone, like Nathan and Beth, they'll go and visit you guys, right? And then as they're meeting with you, they're like, hey, just give us the name of it. So who else is staying in the cell with you? I, I don't need to know. Just give me some other names. And then they'll go the following, I'm here to visit this person, just so they can actually get out and meet some. This is, this is what's happening right now, uh, six and a half hours from where we stand, by plane. And some of us were worried about getting out of bed this morning. <laughs> it's a different world, eh? It's a different world. And my work with Churches of Christ, this is a long intro, um, I, I get to do some work, youth and young adult um, ministry development, and uh, it's an absolute privilege. So uh, that's a little bit about me, uh, but maybe this next image uh, that we can show, I don't, they, oh, so that's, they're my four kids, how nice, so oh, that's not so nice. Um, let me just share a little bit. So um, you may pick up my tendencies to move around a little bit and uh, be very visual in how I explain things. I think I've got undiagnosed ADD. Um, I was never given meds as a kid, just the, uh, the backhand from the parents and the ruler from the teachers. Um, it wasn't illegal back then. But last year, I used myself as a social experiment. And this is actually what I did. So I kept my head shaved, grew a beard out, wore some traditional attire, um, and went into different spaces and places uh, just to gauge people's reactions. Now, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm committed to the cause of the kingdom. And my desire is to see young people, specifically young people, recognize that the kingdom of God is worth living and dying for. That's all I want to be known for. That's it. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what drives me day after day. And this is what I did to gauge public perception. And even for you, honestly, just sitting there looking at that image, um, is someone brave enough to call out what your immediate response is? Yeah. Does that instill hope in you? Does that in, what does that instill in you? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so all, mate, you're just articulating what everyone else is thinking, eh? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's true. That's just the bottom line. It's fear. Why? And this is what I've come across. Fear exists because someone or something is unknown. And the best way to break fear is to make what is unknown known. It's not rocket science. But see, we have to figure out how to get past judging a book by its cover. We all do that. I do that. If I was to see me walking down the street, I'd be like, here we go. And I'll try, I would hope that I would try and go and actually start a conversation and say, like to him and start away. It was funny. I started learning some of these traditional greetings. I was in uh, Fremantle visiting the um, Lee and Shannon, who are the Church of Christ ministers here in Frio sometime last year, dressed up in my cultural attire again. And then you've got these, um, these Muslim students come from overseas wearing some orange vests and they do like their acts of good service. Essentially, they're like J-dubs door knocking, but they're not door knocking. They're just walking the street looking for people to pray with and to introduce to the prophet Muhammad. And so they saw me and they thought I was one of them and they came running up to me all excited about another brother here. And so I saw them coming. I'm like, game on, boys. Um, and so I'm just like, you know, assalamu alaikum. And they start greeting me back, assalamu alaikum, and then And I was like, oh, sorry, fellas, that's all I got, eh? Um, didn't mean to lead you astray. They're like, what? I said, I'm... Then they asked me to go and pray with them. And I'm like, I'm just about to go and pray over here. Come with me. So they started walking with me. And we, we go towards the church. And they're just like looking around. What's going on here? Then I'm like, come, come. We're just going to go. We can come sit here and pray together. They're like, no, no, we're going to go to the masjid over here. I'm like, oh, no, no. I, like, I, don't, I, don't, worship, I don't worship the prophet uh, Muhammad. Then you know, I worship Jesus. And uh, they were a little bit confused. And then we shared a bit more story together. And then I wished them well on their way and haven't seen them since. Um, but here we go. So fear is what dictates. But let me share with you this story, right? So um, this is going back. The very first time I did this was in 2013. And I didn't do it for a full year back then. But I was with my daughter, my eldest daughter, who was then in kindergarten. Picked her up from school, going down to the local Coles in Canningvale, where I was living at the time. And um, at about 4 o'clock, they marked down the chooks. Down, you know, they're usually $10, down to about 8 bucks. It's the best time to go and get your hot chook. So I went after school to get a hot chook for dinner with my daughter. And walk in with this kindy kid, school uniform, Thorny Christian College across the church. And I walk in to get our discounted chook. And uh, some bloke just, just opens up a can on me at Coles. Just, just go back to where you effing came from. You don't effing belong here. And he just, he just, he just let rip. And I've got my, my daughter looking at me, looking at this bloke, looking at me. And she got scared. And then while this guy's still having a crack at me, she's like, Daddy, why is he so mean? I'm like, honey, he's, he's just afraid. So when he was telling me to go home, I'm like, I just want to get my chook, and I am going to go home. I just live around the corner. Um, we get this stuff all the time. So I know it doesn't quite apply to this situation, but there's a statement through the book of John, 1 John, and it says that perfect love casts out all fear. What does it mean for you and I to practice perfect love with people who look like this? Because until we actually take that seriously, how else are they, I don't even like using them and us, but how else are they going to hear about this hope that we profess to have, about this God that we've been in here worshipping together this morning? They're not going to walk through these doors, not in a hurry. But where you are, you've got to take it to them, folks. You've got to take, and here's the reality. Australia now is recognised as the number one 
most culturally diverse nation on planet Earth. There are over 300 native language speaking groups that call Australia home now. 30% of 29.7% latest research from McCrindle suggests and states that the population of Australia, just under 30%, were actually born overseas, and that's not a European country. Folks, you want to get missional? God has brought the nations to us. You want to go and serve India? Save your airfares. 12% of the population in Harrisdale, Piara Waters and Canivale are Hindu. Go and get a curry and sit with them. Go, go to India, just, just down south of the river. You want to go and serve the Somali pirates? There's four of them drive Uber in Cannington, right near the Rocks Church. Go and meet them. Fantastic stories. Absolutely amazing. Bit wild characters. Um, but you want to go and serve some of the, you know, East Africans and West Africans, they're there. You want to go and serve the Chinese? Go to South Perth and around the city central. Go into Northbridge. Huge Vietnamese community. You want to go and serve the Karen people from Myanmar and Thailand? Go to Girawain and Balga. Folks, they're here. They're here. If God's calling you to go, pack your bags and go. If God's calling you to stay, wake up because there's work to be done. That's the truth. And I haven't even started my sermon yet. Woo! Here we go. I better get stuck into it. This topic of wilderness is what we want to be talking about, right? Has, um, I don't know about you, I'm a, I'm a big West Coast fan, yeah? I'm actually not too disappointed about Friday night, but let me share with that another time. But if you want to talk about wilderness, I'm thinking, um, here we go, the Dockers since 94. That's a form of wilderness, if ever I've seen one. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, what, what other, maybe wilderness for you, what else could it be? I know for us as a family, um, after spending time as a high school chaplain and teacher, um, I've been co-directing a not-for-profit organisation since 2013. 2015 was a pivotal year for our family, where I ended up resigning from my secure full-time job and embarking on this adventure. And the end result was, that was December 2015. By July 2016, we were homeless. And so we spent 471 days with my wife and I, our four kids and our bisexual dog, without a fixed address, just living out of suitcases here in Perth. From July 2016 to December 2017. Now, if that's not wilderness, I don't know what is. It wasn't an easy time, but it knitted us together as a family like nothing else, and it's just steeled our resolve for what we feel God has called us to. I'm not saying that you all have to go through something like that. I'm just sharing some of my story here. But that's a form of wilderness that I've experienced in, in recent times. What other forms of experience do we have? I mentioned about the Karen people and three of my students this year that are studying Catalyst with us uh, were born in the Karen refugee camps between Myanmar and Thailand. And you want to hear about a, a people in their own land who have been displaced and persecuted, you listen to the Karen story, it is heart-wrenching and it is still happening today. This is horrific, the stuff that's going on. I would never recommend a Rambo movie to you, but Rambo 4 actually documents the journey of the Karen people and it's fairly accurate. Who would have thought Sylvester Stallone did something useful? Um, the, all these are forms of wilderness. Another form of wilderness that we come across in our society specifically today, I guess you and I would term it um, in regards to mental health, like loneliness. I'd say loneliness is the number one kicker for mental health, right? How, how's this for some recent stats Australia-wise? Uh, 15 to 44-year-olds, Australian Bureau of Stats have just released this information. Last year and the year before, there were approximately 65,300 suicide attempts between people in the ages of 15 to 44. Now, if you do the maths on that, that's about 183 suicide attempts per day in our country. And they say for every 30 attempts, 
there was one person who was successful. What's going on? Because to me, that's, that's a form of wilderness. And then if I think about deeper forms of wilderness, especially what we find through Scripture, we come across probably the most common story in regards to wilderness in Exodus 13, verse 17 to Exodus 14, verse 31, about the Israelites. You all know the story, right? So if you want to follow along in your Scriptures, I'm going to start from Exodus 13, verse 17. We're going to read into Exodus 14, verse 31. I'm not going to read it word for word. As I mentioned to you with the ADD, I'm a very visual person. When I read Scripture, I've got to picture it like a movie scene. So let me recreate the movie scene in my mind as I read that Scripture. You've got Moses there that has been leading his people. He's come up to this point. They've gone through the 10 plagues. Things are fairly chaotic in Egypt right now. And Pharaoh actually has had enough. And so on this final attempt, Moses goes into the courts of Pharaoh and says, for goodness sake, let my people go. Then you've got this emotive cinematic music in the background. Hans Zimmer's gone crazy on this particular scene. And then finally, Pharaoh's like, fine, just go and don't ever come back. And take your God with you. He's caused absolute mayhem here. So Moses is like, oh, we're on. Goes back to his people, all the Israelites. Folks, let's go. Pack them up, round them up. Let's get out of here. Party starts ensuing. People start packing all their belongings. The tents fold down. The camels are all loaded up. The donkeys are all loaded up. The wife and the kids and the grandparents and the uncles and aunts are all together. And then you've got this millions of Israelites who start making their way out from this land that they've been held in slavery and bondage. Can you imagine what that would have been like after all those years? I reckon at least four generations conservatively stuck in slavery and bondage and now they're finally free. And so they're making their way out. Not even seven days have passed and then the scene changes and Pharaoh's there talking to his military leadership and he's like, what, what have we done? We've got rid of our workforce, we've got rid of our labour force, we've got rid of all these additional helps that we had. We can't even finish the projects that we'd started. We're going to be way behind any sort of schedule. Plus, we've lost our population. We're actually exposed here now. We've got to get them back. Um, so he loads up 600 of his finest chariots and warriors and sends them out to chase down the Israelites. Now, if you read some ancient Near Eastern sort of texts and you look at some of these different epics that were going on, uh, usually a force of 200 to 250 chariots to get sent out, that was about normal and that's fairly substantial. So for Pharaoh to send off 600 it shows the power of the Egyptian army, but also shows how desperate he was to bring these Israelites back. And you've got these Israelites that have been wandering through crazy with a pillar of fire and this giant cloud. Oh, what's going on? This is some supernatural stuff that's taken place here. It's an interesting movie scene. And they've come now to this point, they've been told all the time, follow these things, follow these clouds, follow these fires, keep moving forward, don't stop, keep going forward. And they come to the point now where at their, they're at the Sea of Reeds and they actually can't go any further forward. They're just, they're just stuck. And they look to Moses like, so what now? What now? And then as all of these millions of Israelites are there right on this bank and Moses steps up on this rock and he's seeking out direction from God. He says, well, you've led us to this point. We've been following you. You're telling us to go forward, but to where? We don't know what to do. Help us. All of a sudden, this hush comes across all of these Israelites. 
and they look behind them and they see this smoke and dust cloud starting to rise. And they're hearing the sound of these chariot wheels and the rocks. And they're hearing the horses and these voices, these voices, these voices that have been haunting them for all these generations, these familiar sounds of these, of these men yelling at them. And they're hearing these sounds again and they're just like, oh, what did, what did you take us away for? Now they're just going to go back and they're going to be even angry. They're going to punish us more. They're going to work us harder. This, is, this has not been a good move. Moses, what have you done to us? You, just, you should have just left us there. You bring us out here to die. You should have just left us. At least we had food and, and clothing and shelter. And so all of these Israelites now start getting a little bit riled up. Can you imagine the scene of how much anger and distress there would have been? And they're shouting out at Moses, and Moses is over here. He's listening, and he's looking at the distress of the people, and he's just calling out to God. As I've done a little bit more reading into this particular story, I've come across some of the oral histories that the Jewish community hold that are documented in Talmud, and they introduce to us a character that's only ever mentioned by name in Matthew chapter 1, verse 4. There's a guy called Nashon, the son of Aminadab. That's all we hear about this guy, Nashon. So he's in the line, he's in the genealogy of Jesus from the tribe of Judah. He's there. But that's all we hear about him in Matthew 1 verse 4. But some of these oral histories of the Jewish people pick up the story of Nashon. So let me weave this story in just a little bit to give you a sense of how the Jewish people would have responded to what was happening at the time. So you've got Nashon, again, just picture with me, uh, like a nice school orderly line, 12 rows for the 12 tribes standing at the Sea of Reeds. And out the front of the line of the tribe of Judah is this bloke, Nashon. Dust clouds rising, voices are getting louder, people are super distressed. Moses is there crying out louder and more desperately than ever before. And then Nashon's looking around, he's like, I ain't going back. That seems impossible. But I ain't staying here with all these whinging Israelites. God said to go, I'm going. And so we're told Nashon, like just, he just steps out. He just, he just steps out. And now he's ankle deep in the water, but nothing happens. And he keeps walking. Now he's knee deep in the water. Nothing's happening. And he keeps walking. Now he's waist deep in the water. Nothing's happening. But by this stage, the Israelites, they've been like, wait, shh. What's Nashon doing? Oi, oi, guys, look here, look here. And they're all looking at this bloke, Nashon, and he's walking through. Now he's about chest deep in the water. Nothing's happening. And Moses is there going, oh, my, come on. What's going on here, God? You've got to help us. And then as Nashon gets to nose deep in the water, we're told that God says to Moses, just lift up your arms. And just as the... The, the sea of reeds water hits the nose of this maverick Judean. He, all of a sudden, the, the water's just... Whew. Everyone starts celebrating. There's this like, sense of Dutch courage that comes amongst the Israelites, and they just charge all the way through, and they get through the other side, and we know the rest of the story. That's amazing. This bloke, Nashon. So what do we learn from this guy, Nashon. And how does this apply to the wilderness that you and I might be going through? I don't know what's come behind you that's led you to this point here this morning. And I don't know what you've got that's in front of you that seems like an impossibility. But the God that we profess to serve says to march. 
So are you going to be like Moses, who will continue to just seek him no matter how impossible it looks? And will you be as courageous as Nashon that you'll just, you said to go, I'm just going to go? Or are you going to be like the whinging Israelites and keep looking back, wishing for what was instead of dreaming and capturing what could be? It's a challenge for you and I this morning. What, what, what is the wilderness that you are going through in your life where you are stuck right on those banks and the decision before you is there or there? Where is Jesus in all of this? Where is he? The greatest encouragement that I can find in relation to any sense of wilderness in our life and where Jesus is, is captured so beautifully in the book of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 8. If you haven't read those three chapters in Romans, please do yourself a favour this afternoon and just grab a hot cup of chai, sit in front of a fire, and just read up. Because in Romans 5, we're told this, Paul, who's in prison at the time, talk about wilderness, and he says in there, I, am, I embrace the suffering that I go through because I know that suffering or persecution builds endurance. And I know that when I build endurance, that leads to a deeper character. And when I have that deeper character, I know that leads me to a place of hope in Jesus. And here's the problem I find working with, especially with youth and young adults in our society today is when they come across suffering or trouble or a form of wilderness, the prayers that they pray is, God, take me from here and place me in hope straight away. God, take me to that place of hope where Paul is encouraging them saying, when you're at these points, rejoice because now you've got an opportunity to build some endurance and when you have that endurance, you have to build that character. And once you get that character, then you're going to find hope. Don't shortcut the system. The formula works, folks. The formula works. Now, I've never been a runner, but a few years ago, I decided to set myself a challenge to try and run a marathon. And the way that I had to build up over the course of 13 weeks, I couldn't even run 5Ks. And after 16 weeks, I managed to, to run the full 42. But it was a 13-week training program with the equivalent of three weeks worth of rest all the way through. And we started off with little bite-sized runs, building up some sprint training, some long-distance runs, some slower runs, some hill runs, some cross-country runs, some long runs, some short runs, all the way through mixing it up. But the idea was, from where you were, you had to build some endurance. Otherwise, your body wasn't going to be able to cope with what was ahead. So as my body adjusted to what was going on, the endurance built, and it got to a point where with my character, once I hit that wall, I knew that I could push through because I'd done it. My character had been built. It wasn't impossible anymore. It was just a challenge, and I was ready for the challenge. And then because of all that training and persevering that I'd done, um, I managed to get to that finish line. Does that make sense? Folks, when you are at that place of wilderness, try and reframe the thinking a little bit. Parker Palmer puts it this way. He struggled with depression for a long period of his life. And he says now what he has learned to do, he describes depression as this shadow self that creeps up on him, right? And he says now, 
I recognize this shadow self as a gift to myself. And so when I feel this shadow self coming, courage for me is to turn around to look the shadow self in the eye and ask, what are you here to teach me? What are you here to teach me? I'm not one that's ever suffered with depression, so I can't speak into that, and I don't want to belittle what people go through because I know how heavy that can be. But the encouragement is this. Suffering leads to endurance. Endurance leads to character. Character leads to hope. And where is Jesus in all of this? And this is the most amazing part for me, folks. If you read through this in chapter 8 of Romans, we find this out. I'm just going to fast forward right to my favorite verse in verse 34. We are told that Jesus Christ... The man himself stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. Do you get that? The way I understand that is like, this is the picture for me. You know that old picture that you've got, where you've got like the the broken us on this side, and you've got this massive chasm, and then on this side, you've got the other rock, which is God, and then you've got the cross of Jesus building the bridge in between the two, and so we can get from our broken state across to God the Father because of the cross. Like, I get that, but I've always pictured the image for me still being here, having to walk across. So... I would have to say, have a look back on my life. That's why I've sort of busied myself with lots of different things because like, I want to I show God that I'm walking well. Like as if it's about me anyway. But this is what Romans 8.34 captures for you and I. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we are destitute. And yes, we are in a world of trouble. And yes, God is over here. And yes, the cross does build the bridge. But the truth is this when we profess to have Christ as our Lord and Saviour, the walking's already been done, folks. It's right here that we find ourselves. Jesus himself is interceding at the right hand of the Father right now for you and I. There's nothing more that needs to be done, folks. You know what you need to learn to do? Just rest. Just, Just rest in him. Just rest in him. Don't get lazy because when you find true rest, you can't help but want to bring others who are on that wheel of life to say, hey, just sub yourself out, mate. Just take a break. It's already been done. It's already been done. And any time I continue to fall short of the mark, this image that I have in my mind is Jesus interceding between me and the righteous Father. And all Jesus is saying is like, it's all right, I'm like, it's on me. I've got this. I've got this. I got this. And he continues to take that from me. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So if you find yourself at a place of wilderness in your life, please just rest. Don't worry about running back. You've come this far. Get some endurance, get some gumption in you. Build that character. Keep looking forward and just be as courageous as Nushon and just start marching because you know what? With a family like this, you've got people around you that are doing this on your behalf. That's the beauty of church and community, folks. It's not about trying to figure it all out. It's about recognising that you can't actually do it alone and that's why we're here together. So I'm just a brother from another mother down 70K south of here. I've rocked up here on a Sunday morning on the motorbike. My hand's still cold from the motorbike ride. And I'm just here to share with you 
from one brother to another, guys, just rest. It's all been done. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We're all going to go through stuff that sucks in our life. But don't look back. Continue to look forward. And as you march, surround yourself with a community of people that can lift you up and help part the seas. And then as you march forward, proclaim the goodness of Christ Jesus himself because that is all that matters. And in him, there is freedom. And in him, there is rest. And in him, there is hope. And that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. So if any of you this morning are finding yourself in that place of wilderness, can I encourage you to reach out? Don't try and be a hero. You weren't designed to do it solo. Reach out. And I know that there are good people here that would willingly stand in the gap on your behalf to see you march on through. Let me just finish with this. I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I was raised in a devout Hindu family. Talking about mental health, my mum went through some really deep and dark times as she was about to become one of those suicide stats. And just as she was about to take her life, she decided as a good Asian housewife, she better go and load up the fridge, freezer and pantry for one last big shop so the family could be fed before she'd off herself. She's in Thornley, Spencer Village, food court, Sunfart Trading, this Korean shop. She walks in there, starts loading up the trolley full of groceries and this random, random Korean lady walks up to my mum, gives her a hug in the shop and just says to her, you don't know who I am but you just need to know that Jesus loves you. And my mum starts bawling her eyes out. Who are you? What's going on? Mum walks out of the shop trolley full of groceries and a Korean lady. I like to say you can buy anything at these places. So this Korean lady comes home with us every single day for the next two weeks. She's in my living room, what I would now call discipling my mum. And then two weeks pass, we didn't see her or hear from her at all. I'll cut the story short just for the sake of time. Two weeks pass, I wake up the night, my mum's having this crazy nightmare, screaming, I'm freaking out. I run out. Dad says mum will be fine. I know she's not fine. It lasts for about 10 minutes. And then my mum stops screaming. And the next thing I hear is these footsteps through this small three-by-one house in Thornley. And all my mum is saying is, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. The next morning, there's a knock on our door. Lo and behold, there's that Korean lady. Hadn't seen her for two weeks. And she was looking quite sick. Son, is your mum home? Yeah, yeah, come on in, come on. Auntie Nancy, where have you been? She sits down, mum's all happy. She's already started cooking lunch and dinner and it's only breakfast time. I'm just smashing my wheat before I get to school. And then this Korean lady says to my mum's sister, I'm so proud of you, you did it. And mum's like, um, did, did what? And she recounts my mother's nightmare as if she was a fly on the wall. My mum is one of eight from a very, very influential Hindu, Indian, Singapore family. And in her nightmare, her family were holding on to her and she was trying to break free. That's what the screaming was about. And all Auntie Nantan had done for two weeks was describe Jesus as a person of hope, of light, of peace, and of welcome. And more my mum had in that dream was that warmth and that light that she just wanted to get to. And she was trying to break free of her family. Finally, she broke free. That's when she woke up. And she was running through the house saying, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And the reason Nansun was looking so sick was because for two whole weeks, she'd been doing this for our family. 
the power of intercession and prayer, folks. I'm standing here before you today as a man desperately in love with his family and with Jesus because of the faithfulness of a random Korean lady to stand in the gap for my family through prayer. In her everyday, ordinary, boring, mundane grocery shop, she saved us. She saved us as she's buying some egg noodles and some bok choy. She saved us. Folks, do not underestimate the power of yourselves. As I said right at the start, please get this. You are nothing less than a full-time minister of the gospel. You don't know who you're walking past in the street on any random day. You don't have to give them a hug and tell them that Jesus loves them. You just got to be loved to them. Be willing to give them the hug and to love them. But just open your eyes. Be aware of what's happening around and allow the Holy Spirit of God to use you. You are His hands, His feet and His voice if you profess to follow Him. And when we take that seriously, we're going to walk with people in the wilderness moments to help build endurance and character and hope. So if that's you this morning, if that's you at this point facing that impossible sea, I'd encourage you to come and seek some help. Find someone to pray with. And it doesn't have to be one of the pastors out the front. It can be someone that you're sitting next to we're here as a family. But if you want to come on down and start marching your way through the sea, feel free. We'll be down here. Love to be able to pray with you. But let me just do that now. Father God, thank you so much for the gift of your son. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. For we are told has been imparted into us now and is alive and well still in the world today. Father, we are nothing more than broken vessels, damaged, faulty, crumbling away, leaking all over the place, haven't got it all together. We're just broken. And yet that image of the light being placed in a broken jar, shining through all the cracks. If we try and make ourselves whole in our own strength, there's no room for the light to shine through. There is beauty in our brokenness. There are lessons to be learned in the wilderness. And there is hope to be found in you. Father, for any of my brothers and sisters here this morning who are facing some form of wilderness in their life, may they persevere. May they build the endurance that is required. May that form a strength of character that nothing else can. And may they find their hope in you. As we all remember and recognize that there is no condemnation in Christ. It is already finished. It is already done. There is nothing that can separate us from your love. We are found in that place of rest at the right hand of the Father because Jesus, you are interceding for us and you tell us that we are adopted in and so what is yours is ours. And so we sit with you at the right hand of the Father and we find rest in you. But we ask with some of these seas that we find in our lives that you would part them in a miraculous way. But give us the courage Holy Spirit, strengthen us so that even when it seems that the seas are not parting, that we would just march forward anyway. Father, we thank you. 
And we just want to declare this morning that you are good and you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Armit.